The word of God from Mark. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. All together, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing as we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask by your spirit that you would illumine these sacred words and soften our hearts, that we would know you. And Lord, I, I pray as you taught me to pray all those years ago from your word, that may the meditations um, of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. Um, may they be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, so we are in the middle of a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And the passage that Sarah just read to us, it depicts Jesus speaking to this crowd while his family is like, right there listening in. And the truth is, it's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit awkward. Let me, let me kind of help you feel that with this a personal story. As you guys know, you know, when I preach, I, I like to use personal stories to illustrate, you know, the biblical message. And sometimes I will tell stories about dysfunctional things in my childhood. And sometimes I'll tell stories uh, that are maybe are not the most flattering uh, about my parents or my family of origin. And inevitably, after I give a sermon like that, I'll get a phone call from like my dad or my mom being like, hey, mijo, we've been listening to your sermons online. And I'm like, oh, that's awkward. So you can see, right? It's, it's a little bit awkward. That's what's happening in this story today. And I'm going to take some time to explain the implications. But before I do, let me just begin by offering a warning that, in a way, this is a really controversial sermon. I should just tell you it's controversial. And here's why. In my experience as a pastor, you know, there are topics that appear to be controversial. Maybe the exclusive claims of Christianity, maybe the doctrine of hell. Um, those, those seem to be pretty edgy, I guess. Uh, but in reality, you know, most people believe what they believe because... In some ways, those topics tend to be abstract or philosophical in nature. But it's usually the issues that are more concrete that are the most controversial. Uh, the ones that are not abstract or philosophical. Um, so, for instance, um, there's a lot of contra. you know, whenever you, a pastor talks about money, uh, that will end up being pretty controversial. Uh, why? You know, we're, you know, we're addicted to our money. That's why. You know, we, we say that we worship God, but we rest and we trust in our bank accounts. And our money tends to give us more security than Jesus, right? And so, you know, your pastor comes up here and tells you to be generous. You know, it's a little bit controversial. It's a little edgy. 
You can kind of see how this works. Um, it's because it's not abstract. So today I'm going to talk about family dynamics. And there's nothing theologically abstract about what I'm going to talk about. And that's why it's going to be a little bit unnerving, maybe controversial. Not, and I'll listen, not because what I'm actually saying is edgy. It's not. I'm not saying anything edgy. It's just that we have really strong opinions about our families. And Jesus is going to contradict us. So with that introduction and that warning, uh, let's examine the implication of Jesus' teaching on family uh, by evaluating it with kind of three headings for you uh, nerdy uh, note-takers like me. We're going to look at um, the embarrassment of family, then we're going to look at the redefinition of family, and then we're going to look at the identity of family. So embarrassment, redefinition, and identity of family, and with that... Let's begin with the embarrassment of family. So as, um, you know, as Jesus began to speak to the crowds, the very first verse in our passage, verse 31, if you'll look there, tells us that Jesus' family came to him, and it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And then 32, it says, And a crowd uh, was sitting around him, and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, in case, you know, he didn't figure it out. So let me interpret what's happening in those first two verses. So Jesus has begun his ministry. He's performing miracles. He's forgiving people of their sins. He's telling people to follow him. He's claiming to be God. He went to 12 disciples and said, hey, stop what you're doing, quit your day job, follow me. I mean, this is like David Koresh stuff if he's not really God, all right? I mean, this is intense. And uh, so he's doing all this, and clearly Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers and his sisters didn't quite understand what was happening. And in fact, in the same chapter, a few verses earlier, about 10 verses earlier, in verses 20 and 21, if you just look up, up in your Bibles, it says, then he went home. And the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, when his family heard of it, they went out, and went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. All right? Now, so in our passage in verse 31, when the text tells us that Mary and, and his brothers came and they sent to him and they called him, what that means is, they came to lock him up, right? They think Jesus is crazy. Like they want to hospitalize him. You know, in a different account in John 7, chapter 7, verse 5, John says it very plainly. For not even his brothers believed in him. Boy, like family of origin problems. Boy, were they wrong. And not only were they wrong, but this detail is really embarrassing in a variety of ways. And let me explain. So in Puerto Rico, where we just come, where we'd come from, there's this saying, and the saying is um, "Los trapos sucios se lavan en casa." Spanish speakers, and this is what it means: uh, the dirty rags, your dirty rags are cleaned in house in your home. And and what this means, what that phrase means, is that if there's a family problem, you keep it indoors. 
You don't invite the world into your, the family problems. We are told to keep our dark secrets in the family because we don't want to embarrass or dishonor the family reputation, right? It could discredit, you know, the Garcias or whatever. Well, here we are. Man, they're not keeping their dirty family secrets in-house. So everyone knows now of the incredulity of Jesus' own family. Now, here's the thing. The reason why I make this observation, the reason I started off, is because this detail should actually strengthen your faith in Jesus. Let me explain how. So as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is claiming to be God, forgiving sins, performing miracles. And in order to organize and make sense of those details, people started creating a, creating a kind of organizing narrative. And as a result, people claimed that Jesus was a liar. That he claimed to be God, but he was lying. And some people claimed that he was crazy. They actually thought he was, maybe some thought he was possessed by a demon. But based on Jesus' self-affirmations, he was either, like to use the Blaise Pascal trifecta, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the son of God. But, but because of what he said, he can't be a nice person. And now he's a person that's off the table, that's not an option anymore. Liar, lunatic, Lord. Now modern people, um, we don't like tend to, even the most skeptical among us, don't tend to look at Jesus and call him a lunatic we don't tend to call him a liar, but at the same time, we're not like signing up to call him Lord either. So, uh, you know, modern people have kind of created this fourth option, and I'm going to call this the suspicion of history option, right? And this option suggests that, that Christ was really just this nice, inspirational person, but that over the centuries, the people in power changed the Bible in order to gain power. And so they suggest that Jesus, at least how he is depicted in the Bible, is not the real Jesus. He is just the fruit of mythology that was created over time to help certain groups of people have power over other groups of people. All right, y'all following the logic there? All right. Now, there's so much wrong with that sort of response. And I think I could spend some time sort of discrediting it. Uh, I, I don't have time for all that today, but I am going to invite you into just one. And one. Uh, one of the many problems with that kind of explanation is actually the counterproductive content of the Bible. See, if you're going to invent a religion in order to accumulate power, then you would not include information that discredits the early leaders of the movement, Right? And on every page in the New Testament, the apostles are depicted as jerks and traitors. And that's why this, this account is so poignant. Like Jesus' own brother, James, he was like one of the primary church leaders in Jerusalem in the first century. He actually wrote a portion of your New Testament. He's this important leader, and yet he is depicted as a mistaken fool. I mean, how could James have had so little faith? I mean, they grew up together. Why did he agree with Mary and, and try to lock Jesus up as a lunatic? I mean, Jesus' own family had such little faith. Now, this account would have been incredibly embarrassing. So why is it included? And here's why. Because it happened. <laughs> That's why. 
because this is a historical account. Like they're not inventing myth. They're just reporting the details and the reality of Jesus' like family of origin. Myths never include counterproductive information. So like you, you, C.S. Lewis makes this point. Y'all know I talk about C.S. Lewis a lot. He is really known for his child, uh, children's fiction. But what you may not know about C.S. Lewis is he's a world-class scholar, professor, University of Oxford. And his field of study was he was a specialist in medieval and Renaissance literature. So he took particular interest in the genre of mythology. So Lewis is familiar with like all the classical mythology of Greece and Rome. And even he's really even more enamored with like Norse mythology and Scandinavian and like. So this guy understands mythology, how it functions on a literary level, right? So in one of his essays, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, All I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I am prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people. And I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. That's what he writes. Here's the thing, you guys. Now hear me real clearly. Jesus is the Lord. These stories are telling you the truth. They're true. And it's really important that you understand that. And even these embarrassing details. All right, now that we've looked at these embarrassing details of Jesus' family, now let's adopt a posture of trust as, well, as to see what Christ is going to tell us. So we look, let's move to our second point. We looked at uh, the embarrassment of family. Now we're going to look at the redefinition of family. Let's move on in our text. In verse 33 and 34, the text says the following. Look there, follow me with me in your Bible. And it says, And he answered them, Who are my brother and my my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Now in these two verses, Jesus is defining the family with new boundaries. Now, this might be mildly shocking to you, but let me help you understand it even more. In the first century, those two verses were perhaps the most scandalous part of the whole gospel itself. So N.T. Wright, a scholar, he's a scholar of Second Temple Judaism. That's just a fancy way of saying he is a historian of Judaism in the New Testament versus Judaism in the Old Testament, because there's some shifts there. So N.T. Wright, he makes the following observations about the culture. He says, With ancient non-Western cultures, it was normal for children to live close to their parents, probably in the same house. He says the family unit would often be a business unit as well. So for the Jews, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living and doing life. And moreover, in the first century, loyalty to the family was one of the ways of proving loyalty to Israel. Loyalty to the family is proving loyalty to Israel. So to break, so to break this link 
what Jesus is doing, it's not just a cultural disaster. It's also perceived as a religious disaster. (laughs) You see? So Mark, the author, is showing us that Jesus is challenging the symbols that lay at the very heart of a Jewish sense of identity. Family loyalty in the Jewish culture was on par with Sabbath loyalty or food law, food laws and loyalty in that sense. Are y'all following this? Being loyal to one's ancestral heritage is equivalent to being loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, that's the context. So let's go back to the details of the story. Mary, the brothers of Jesus, they came from Nazareth to Capernaum to find Jesus, take him away, because he's embarrassing, right? He's embarrassing them. And Jesus makes matters even worse by cutting right through one of the most sacred bonds, the family. So Jesus is doing the unthinkable. He is starting a new family without regard to ordinary family bonds. If these verses are not deeply shocking, then you haven't understood Jesus properly. And Jesus would say it with even more startling clarity in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14 when he says, he says, <laughs> he says if, if anyone wants to come after me, and if he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, if he doesn't even hate his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is using like strong imagery to help us understand that following Jesus means you are born again into a new family, a redefined family. You know, when I was in the Air Force, um, I had to undergo these really extensive interrogations of my family background in order to get awarded like these um, like top secret clearances, access to government secrets and whatever. So this process was like 12 months long. Apparently, they even interviewed my fourth grade teacher. I don't know what she could have told them, but that was a thing. And so I have my final interview, like the final interrogation. And this lady who was concluding uh, this, doing this interrogation, concluding this process, she knew that um, my parents were Mexican and that half my family still lives in Monterey, Mexico. And so in an attempt to sort of reveal and to like shore up you know, my deepest loyalties, she decided to ask me kind of an absurd, improbable question. I'm not, ma- I'm not making this up. She says, Lieutenant Garcia, if the United States Air Force, as an act of war, needed to drop a bomb on Monterey, Mexico, could you support this? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? What is she doing with that question? What is she doing? She's trying to discover if I have drawn the borders of my loyalty around my country or around my family. Y'all see that? See, being in the military, having access to these secrets, meant I better have a new loyalty, right? Well, following Jesus means that we must have this new, deeper loyalty. We have a new family. Our family is now redefined. So listen, because this is so important. Jesus is calling you and me to be loyal to a new family. And this loyalty is deeper than blood. It's deeper than your last name. 
the entire witness of the New Testament points to this new family. And yet, like, I feel like evangelicalism, like, misses it and ignores it. Jesus, like, when he teaches us to pray, how does he teach us? He says, our Father, our Father who art in heaven. Like, we all have a new Father together. Reconciliation with God. Salvation, reconciliation with God is depicted as being adopted. Adoption is the primary metaphor of this reconciliation. In, in, in Galatians 4, it's going to say, When in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. The way that Christians address each other, is a little corny sometimes, is what? We call each other brother or sister, right? And Jesus is our elder brother. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, for he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And we're promised an inheritance from this heavenly father. Hebrews 9 says, Therefore, he's the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance means that our father's passing something down to us. Right? It's a family thing. Our sacraments, right, are depictions of this new family. That communion, it's a family meal only to be shared with those who you're intimately connected with. Our baptisms are not depictions of individualized feats of faith. They're dramatic inductions into what? The family of Christ. These are profound metaphors for family membership. And all of this fortifies one point that's controversial, yet unmistakably clear in the New Testament, that it should be absolutely impossible for you to understand your faith apart from your participation in the family of Christ. I'm talking about the church. Like, it can't be you and God in the mountains, however awesome that is. And the church, you guys, I know, is, it's like any other family. It has serious problems. It's filled with prideful, hypocritical, addicted, elitist, lying brothers and sisters. To include the pastor. But it's still the family of God, and it's the one he has ordained for you and for me. You know, in, um, in reaction to sort of ritualistic, dead orthodoxy in past centuries, you know, in the 20th century, evangelicals began to use language like, um, you know, following God is, a, is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? And I, I think I agree with that. That's true. But the way that relationship has been defined is totally in individualistic terms, like a person who's all alone with God, who has no need for the church. Because why? It's just you and God. That is theologically dangerous 
and absent from the scriptures. Without a church to participate in, God is reduced to a therapist. That is like people want God because they're looking for forgiveness. And so people see God as a solution to their guilt and to their problems. You know, um, where I lived in Puerto Rico, every time I had to drive to church, there was this big billboard, and it said, in Spanish, not in English, but it said, Jesus is the solution to all of your problems. Look at me, because I want to be really clear. No, he's not. No, he's not. Like, Jesus will make your life more difficult. Like he's inviting you to carry your cross, to be crucified with him. He might ask you to do things like serve the poor, to forgive your enemies, to give away your money, to confess your sins. He might actually call you to suffer and still joyfully worship God without ever knowing why you have to suffer the way you're suffering. And still you have to give your life to him. Being a part of Christ's family will cause you more problems than being alone. I promise you that. But what it means is, is that it's real. It means that it's real. Being a part of a family means you have privileges, but you have responsibilities, and you make sacrifices. And that's the essence of true love anyway. No matter what these big hair televangelists Mega church people tell you, Christianity is not about you. It's not about therapy. It's about how God turns enemies into family through Christ in order to bring about his good purposes for his own glory, which we know very little about. And so our mindset kind of has to change. We need to allow Christ's redefinition of family to change our loyalties, in order that we might be authentic Christians, not not perfect Christians, but authentic Christians, we've got to allow Christ's teaching. We have to let him change our beliefs and our habits and our practices. Because if if Jesus isn't changing us, can we say that we're following him? I mean, what would it mean in any meaningful sense to follow him? Well, it's just, some people want the forgiveness of Christ without the rule of Christ. But today, Jesus is inviting you and I to truly follow him and allow him to define our deep, deepest family loyalties. Let me give you just one way that maybe one practical way to accomplish this. We will uh, begin to allow our definition of family to be changed when our mothers and our fathers are leading this effort. It has to come to Christian parents and spiritual parents and grandparents, right? So if you're a father or if you ever desire to be a father, listen to me. Uh, You need to be an example. Not so that Jesus loves you, but just because it's the right thing to do. You need to be an example. You need to lead your family. You need to be the first person to volunteer at church. You need to be the first one to give financially. You, you need to be the one who insists that your children love Jesus more than they love you. To follow him, not you. If you're a mother, 
wherever desire to be a mother or a spiritual mother, listen to me. You need to tell your children that the primary way to honor you on Mother's Day is to go to church. I'm setting you up because Mother's Day is coming soon. Like, don't create a family meal that will force your children to miss time with their spiritual family, right? Insist. That, insist that they worship with their spiritual family and help them to do that. Don't make them feel guilty for loving their church and prioritizing their lives around their spiritual families. Don't, don't do that. And in our text this morning, Jesus is redefining the meaning of family. And, and we need to let this text contradict our cultural assumptions about who's family. This teaching has to be reinforced by parents, not just pastors up here telling people what to do. When parents put this teaching into practice, we'll, we'll start seeing some change. We'll begin to follow Jesus in a really biblical way. Told you all this was controversial, right? I warned you. All right, let's move to our final point. Um, we looked at the embarrassment of family, the redefinition, and lastly, and I'll end here, the identity of family. So, like, I recognize, because I'm human, just like you guys, that Jesus' perspective on family can be unnerving. But behind its demands is actually what we need. Jesus knows that, right? The rules of Jesus are not abstract. The words of Jesus, they're meant to engender new life inside of us. That's what he wants for you. And let me explain how. So remember, Jesus is going around city to city. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. His popularity is increasing. Thousands of people are starting to follow Jesus. But the thing is, is when you look closely, the followers of Jesus were not the people that you and I prefer to identify with. People who perceive themselves as um, smart or important or philosophical, they're often the ones who are disinterested in Jesus. It's really the desperate people. It's the desperate people who find Jesus irresistible. So what kind of people were the followers of Jesus composed of? Orphans. Those orphans. Both spiritual orphans and real orphans. You know, you have men who were spiritually, physically, emotionally abandoned by their fathers. And their abandonment led them to lead a life of exploitation. We call them tax collectors. Women who were... Sexually abused by a family member, their abuse convinced them that they weren't worth honor and respect. And later they would decide to sell their bodies, and we call that prostitution. And these are the men and women who were outsiders. They were rejected. They carried deep wounds, dark secrets from their biological families. And these people were wounded. And sadly, when they were honest with themselves, they knew that they had wounded others as well. And these are the ones who would listen to Jesus so carefully. And when Jesus would say hard things, tons of people would abandon Jesus, but not them. They stuck by. They stayed with him. 
Why didn't they leave? Why didn't they leave? It was because Jesus was offering them an opportunity to be a part of a new family. Look at verses 34 and 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus is offering them an opportunity to be their older brother. A brother who wouldn't hurt, but would speak life and encouragement over them. This promise, oh, you guys, like when I read this, like it awakened something so hopeful in me. Like I'm kind of afraid to believe it. It's just like too good. So y'all remember about, I don't know, six months ago, I told an illustration about when Micah was a little bitty guy, maybe one years old, two years old, and I had him on my shoulder right? Just like dads hold kids over. Y'all remember this? But I had walked under a part of the roof where it lowered, and I didn't realize it. And so, because I was getting tired, I put my hands underneath his armpits, and I thrust them up forward to get them to clear my head. Y'all remember this story? And what happened? Man, I crushed my son's one-year-old head into the ceiling, and it was awful. Like, it was awful. I just hurt my son. It haunted me. I had anxiety for, like, weeks. It was awful. That was 15 years ago. And you know what I've learned since? I have learned that that particular incident pales in comparison to the many other ways that I've wounded my son. My anger, my hypocrisy, my impatience, my pride, my lack of repentance even as recent as last night. Those are wounds that have inflicted a far more devastating blow than that head-crushing incident. (laughs) Here's the point. In the patriarchal society of the first century, where where family was paramount, where family identity was everything, Jesus had the nerve to defy it all. Like your family is being replaced by something better. Jesus is saying, even if your family abandons you, like my family abandoned me, even if your family hits your head on the ceiling, physically or spiritually speaking, Jesus said, I can heal that. And you can be a part of my family. You can enjoy the love of a father that will never inflict scars. You know, like the psalmist says in Psalm 2710, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Like this is really good news for my little boy, for my three girls who have this like imperfect father, right? This is good news for me as an imperfect father with a sensitive conscience, right? Like for all of us, Christ is inviting us into new, a new family that brings healing. Our Heavenly Father loves my son. He loves me. He loves the wounded. He loves the one who inflicts wounds. And how come? How come? Because by his wounds, 
we are healed. Thank you, Father, for the promise of a new family. Amen? Amen.